Over the past three decades, women's domestic violence services in the Pacific have led advocacy for increased gender equality, for women's human rights, and for engaging men and boys as allies in the prevention of violence against women. In this panel event at the 2020 Australasian Aid Conference, Amy Gilday, Abigail Erickson, His Excellency John Carley, and Melky Anton explore what initiatives to support gender equality and violence against women look like, how better to combine service delivery and advocacy, and the role of male leadership and male advocates in working with men to effect changes in gender equality and ending violence against women. The Australasian Aid Conference is hosted by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University in partnership with the Asia Foundation. The panel is chaired by Glenn Davies, Director of Gender Equality, Disability and Social Inclusion, Asia and Pacific at Kofi International Development. So to set up this panel, I just wanted to um, uh, provide you with some context to it. I think it's important to have some context when we're talking about gender equality and understand some key terms. This panel will be slightly different perhaps from the ones that you've experienced in that we're going to make it fairly conversational. These people have got a lot to say and I'm really encouraging, encouraging them uh, to take up, uh, to talk about issues that perhaps uh, lead into their area of expertise as well. We want to be clear about certain terms we're talking about today. And firstly, although the term gender-based violence will be used in our discussion, it may be used interchangeably with terms like uh, intimate partner violence and violence against women. But what we're talking about is men's violence against women, harassment, sexual, physical, economic, intimate partner violence in the home uh, by male partners against female partners and children by way of exposure to intimate partner violence or by direct violence and sexual exploitation. And secondly, we agree that men's violence is not wired into our genes and DNA. It isn't inevitable, it isn't biological, uh, it's, it's, it's both preventable and unacceptable. So our panellists are assembling today with these, these principles firmly in the background of their work. Um, although we know there's no single cause of uh, violence against women, uh, we, uh, we also know that there are, uh, are factors that consistently predict higher levels of violence against women. Uh, our watch research from Australia uh, that embraces um, research from overseas and across the world compartmentalises these, um, these universal primary gender drivers. And I might say they're widely recognised and they are that condoning, excusing or shifting blame for violence against women is a gender driver. That men's control of women's freedom and choice in public and private spheres is a gender driver. That rigid interpretations of masculinity and femininity and how these are performed is a gender driver. And men's peer relations that emphasise aggression and disrespect is another gender driver. So again, these are the principles that we come together, a common understanding. Um, I'd like to introduce our panellists today. Um, I've had great working relationships with you all over a period of time. Uh, some of you I haven't seen for a while and uh, it's great to see you in the room. Uh, His Excellency, uh, Mr John Carley, CMG OBE. He's the current PNG High Commissioner to Australia, uh, taking up the position from December uh, 2017. I had a conversation with him earlier. His uh, deployment was a, a little bit later than that, but he's been in that position. I consider His Excellency a dear friend and his title of excellent, Excellency is derived from the adjective excellent. 
which well describes his leadership in this area. Uh, he's displayed a long and distinguished career in PNG public service. Uh, for 40 years he's worked in that public service and he rose to the position of Secretary of the Department of Personnel Management. Uh, that area in government's in charge of uh, the, the industrial relations, human resource, human resource management, public sector and governance reforms, executive leadership appointments and executive, importantly, executive performance management. Uh, in the 2010s, Mr Carley, in partnership with the Minister for Public Service, Sir Puker Timu, demanded the public service and the government shift towards a more gender equitable public service. We will go more into Mr Carley's excellence and how he, his male leader, leadership was demonstrated and his commitment to real results of gender equality and ending violence against women. I'd also like to acknowledge Mr Carley's deputy here today, uh, the Deputy High Commissioner, Mr Sakias Temio. Uh, uh, welcome, sir. Thank you for coming uh, to our panel today as well. Uh, Amy uh, Gilday. Amy is our Managing Director of uh, International Development Asia Pacific for Coffee, a Tetra Tech company based in Adelaide. Um, as part of Tetra Tech's global international development services business, Amy leads Coffee's international and development business across Asia and Pacific, delivering solutions to development challenges in Australia and New Zealand governments, private sector and non-government organisation. Amy was previously the practice for Coffee's research, monitoring and evaluation uh, and led a team of uh, specialists delivering design, monitoring and evaluation, learning and research services to clients, supporting evidence-based data-led decisions making and program delivery. Amy's worked uh, tirelessly now uh, for, for uh, over 20 years, uh, and she's worked for uh, organisations such as Médecins Sans Frontières, my French isn't that <laughs> developed, KPMG's Asia Pacific Health and Human Services. Her expertise in global health delivery and diplomacy includes joint papers in International Journal of Health Policy and Management, and most recently a publication in Progress in Economics Research, Volume 40.2. You might want to have a look at that after the panel. Abigail Erickson is a program specialist in UN Women in the Pacific region. Abby's been working in the field of ending violence against women and girls for the past two decades and been living and working in the Pacific since 2015. And Melky Anton, my dear friend as well, uh, he's a project and program uh, advisor for gender equality and male advocate for ending violence against women. Uh, he's working in support of male advocacy. He has undergone extensive training in male advocacy by the Fijian Women's Crisis Centre between 2009 and 2014, and he works across the region. He's part of our uh, the master's development program. Uh, he, sorry, he's completing a master's program in development studies at the University of Melbourne with a specialisation in gender and development. So let's kick off our panel. Uh, in 2017, Professor Stephen Howes, uh, the Director of Development Policy ANU, wrote a piece in talking about the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre. He said, FWCC doesn't only challenge orthodoxy, but it challenges current Australian aid rhetoric, which calls for a new paradigm, with a more focus on innovation and a move away from service delivery. In fact, the best projects often combine service delivery with advocacy. And Amy, I'm going to ask you, as a managing contractor and working for gender equality and ending violence against women, how do we better combine service delivery with advocacy? Great. Thanks, Glenn. Um, certainly having clarity around these partnerships 
um, and how they can be galvanised to produce outcomes is important. And therefore, the importance of the advocacy to influence can't be overstated. So we know that um, there are several layers to this. Uh, and certainly having read the article, uh, sorry, pop the mark on, um, agree that the aim of the work should be to empower government um, or governments to do more at taking the lead in working in partnership uh, with local services and NGOs. Uh, from a managing contractor perspective, I really see that there's, there's four things or key areas where, where we can work um, to support this, and that's around technical delivery and finding those entry points. It's around engagement uh, with other key gender equality policy areas. Thirdly, it's around that tension between do no harm and do nothing versus doing no harm through active management and planning. Uh, and then fourthly, being clear on what we mean when we say working with, with men and boys. And so if, if I unpick that a little bit and provide some examples of the programs that we're working on at the moment and where we're delivering um, GEDSD, both from a mainstreaming and a, and a specific focus in our programs, if we look at um, our Vanuatu education program, uh, from a technical delivery perspective, we've been working with the Ministry of Education there and the Vanuatu Women's Crisis Centre um, to provide technical support at a recent workshop with the Ministry. Um, this presentation really set the, or the workshop set the bar high uh, in terms of being able to facilitate a space to have a much more nuanced discussion with the Ministry um, and around a more granular policy development um, process for the whole of Ministry service delivery. Um, the Women's Centre um, have this government engagement as part of their annual action plan, but for us as a managing contractor, um, it's really around how we can act as the glue to bind these actors together um, for greater benefits for gender equality and ending violence against women and girls. Um, if I think about the, the Curibus Education Program where we work, um, being a relationally based program, having those individuals who can influence within their sphere and within their community are really critical. So for us in Kiribati, we have a former respected teacher as our, our key GEDSTI specialist and her advocacy and relationships with the ministry um, really keep the constructive dialogue ongoing um, and particularly when it comes to ending violence against women and girls and, and keeping this as a main focus um, for the ministry as well. She supports the development unit um, or the development of a unit for pre-service teaching for curriculum development and redevelopment um, and working closely with those writers in the workshop and design of new curriculum templates um, and materials that also helps produce a more positive gender education um, for students in that system. And this, and this means that it's also possible for teachers to move to a towards a more gender-sensitive teaching approach uh, and that students are exposed to less harmful gender stereotypes um, that encourage or justify violence in home or community settings. <coughs> if I think about that second area of looking at different policy priority areas, so focusing in on how um, complementary efforts around women's economic empowerment and increasing women's leadership in decision-making can also support this in our role as a managing contractor, um, we've been doing a lot of work in, in Pacific Rise, which is a regional program <coughs> that has a real focus on gender lens investing as well and educating and bringing investors and creating that ecosystem where we can see that um, beyond a financial
social return, there are social outcomes that we can achieve with an explicit focus uh, on gender and women's economic empowerment. Um, and by educating those investors and bringing them along in the process on the value of investing in women's businesses. We know that more economic empowerment equals more choices um, for women experiencing violence. And so if that also brings me to the third point around how we program and plan so that we don't do harm, um, we know that there can be greater exposure, but if we look at what opportunities or what, what strategies there are for us to work with, and this is certainly where Melky's had a lot of experience and we've done a lot of work on the Australia Awards program in P&G on how we work pre-deployment for awardees with both men and women in those families to understand what the potential impacts might be and, and how to work in harmonising those family relationships really helps in terms of the outcomes that we're seeing with awardees during uh, their studies and upon their return as well. Mm. Thanks. Um Abby, uh, before I go to the men to ask what male leadership looks like, I'm going to ask you, you, you work in um, implementing programs across the region uh, with uh, UN Women. So what does those initiatives look like to support gender equality and ending violence against women? Thanks, Glam. Easy question. Um, and I did have a PowerPoint prepared, so now you'll just be at the whim of my, of my <laughs> different thoughts on this topic having spent the last, um, yeah, two decades or so working on ending violence against women and girls as a woman. Um, and now, um, obviously, I've been in the Pacific. I see many colleagues here who also have worked in the Pacific, so I do invite your contributions as well. I mean, I think the first thing that I want to say is that, and I keep saying this, but I think it needs to always be said, which is, in order for us to solve the problem of violence against women and girls, of really men's violence against women, we have to understand what drives it. We do know globally gender inequality drives violence against women and girls, the power and balance between men and women. That's what makes working with men in this space really, really complex. Um, and there's a lot of contextual aspects to um, what patriarchy and power over women looks like. Um, whether or not you're in my country, in the United States, with a range of diversities, or in the Pacific, um, or any other, any other context, you have to really go into um, how do you work within that power mm. to transform it, but also know it's there. And so that's a very, very tricky space. I also want to say, when I arrived in the Pacific in 2015, at the global level, we were really dealing a lot with this issue of accountability. It was so good that men were coming into the movement and have been, and women who have been at the forefront of addressing violence against women and girls for decades, including in the Pacific, have always worked with men. Um, but it's been in the kind of 2010 onward that engaging men and boys as kind of a like niche area has really come out. And, um, and so while that was happening at a global level, we were seeing some trends that were, were really challenging, actually, and I'll go into those in a minute and really talking about well, what does male accountability look like um, in the space of ending violence against women and girls. And I just want to really acknowledge the, you know, really the Fiji Women's Crisis Center. And I know Melky will speak more about their motto, but when I came to the Pacific, one of the things that was phenomenal was how much accountability and men's work in the space of ending violence in the Pacific and their accountability back to women's lived experiences mm -hmm. of violence was being talked about. So I actually felt like I had gone from this global discussion down into the Pacific where there was much more um, 
yeah, much more nuanced and real conversations happening. And, and um, that's been something I've learned from very much uh, during my time. Um, I think that some broad themes that I would say, and I know there's going to be a lot of back and forth conversation, is that obviously we're seeing a lot more men and boys engaged in the issue of violence against women and girls from different sectors, from political leaders to UN Women has more recently, um, and with other partners, been working with faith and sports partners in the Pacific. Um, I do want to say that, I know Glenn says I'm obsessed with rugby, but I think it's important to note that there was a situation that happened in, in the Pacific in Fiji a few months ago, and um, Oceania Rugby came out and explicitly denounced violence against women and girls. I mean, that... We've been working with them in the space of gender equality and an equal playing field, but to come out and say, no, violence against women and girls is not okay, that felt like a moment. That felt really important because um, that's a very male-dominated space, and we have to look at how we're using influencing sectors and spaces and where men are in those spaces to challenge um, some of these ideas. I think, um, I think the other thing that I would share on this topic is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is complex. Working, men's relationship to violence is not one thing. Mostly women's relationship to violence is as survivors, as victims of violence. Men's relationship to violence is more complex. Um, they can be perpetrators, bystanders, allies, um, victims themselves. We know that men who experience violence or witness violence in the home um, are more likely to perpetrate violence. And so working, when you're talking about working with men, there's a lot you have to unpack there. Are you talking about perpetrator programs? Are you talking about primary prevention efforts? And really looking at how we're transforming ideas about what it be, means to be a man and toxic masculinity. Um, are you looking at, you know, kind of gender norms and how that's playing? out and shifting those norms. So I think that there's a lot more nuanced discussions and programming that you have to get into. And then within that, you also have to look at what are the principles that you have to keep in mind when you're engaging with men. And one of the things that the feminist movement and the women who have been working in this movement, whether in the Pacific or globally, talk a lot about is this thing of accountability. What does it mean for men to be working on an issue that affects us, that kills us, and be accountable in that space to us. And I think that that's something that, um, like I've said, I've seen unpacked and really looked at. Um, and and one, of the, the, one of the best models in the Pacific is, is the, the model that was pioneered by FWCC around um, men's advocacy for women's human rights. Um, last point, Glenn, and then I swear I will stop talking. Um, but it's just to also say that, you know, I think we're at a critical juncture. Mm. Uh, I think that we're at a critical juncture globally, and I think we're at a critical juncture as well in the Pacific to get this right. Um, I've seen um, some real leadership um, from whether it is within, you know, churches um, um, and or whether it's within government. The Fiji government's just announced a whole of government national action plan to prevent violence against women and girls. And one of the key sectors they're going to look at is engaging men and boys. And I think we have an opportunity to really do this work and, and do it right. Um, and I think that we, you know, need to go back to what those principles should look like and how we really um, address the power and balance in a way that is um, long-lasting and a way that really recognizes and honors women's voices and experiences. Mm. Oh, thanks, Abby. Um, yeah, you're talking, you talked about real leadership and accountability and, um, and working through the Pacific. 
Um, there was a study in 2013, a prevalence study, uh, that, that provided some evidence about declining rates of violence against women and, and strong evidence among women of, uh, of much lower acceptance of violence. Uh, accept, sorry, acceptability of violence, and the, the recent assess, assessments by FWCC um, and uh, Di Kilsby and Juliet Hunt highlighted 32 positive legislative and policy changes um, in, in the region between 2009 and 15, which covers the period of time that um, uh, John, Mr John Carley was at the helm of uh, the Department of Personnel Management. Um, you were uh, involved in significant positive legislative changes um, uh, and, and initiatives uh, about gender equality, ending violence against women. Uh, you're operationalising your minister's vision for a fairer and, and diverse workforce focusing on gender equality. What did you do in that space back uh, in the uh, 2010s? I think uh, first was to accept that there was a disease in the society that it was uh, damaging the fabric of our society. We had to come to accept and make the decision to do something about it. But also from experience that we had lived with, in our families, growing up, seeing what was happening in our own families and in our, with our neighbors, coming to say that this was unacceptable and that something had to be done about, about it. So there were discussions amongst uh, some of us, men, but also in the houses, in our homes, to see what we could do. And then taking up, taking up another step to have the discussion at the political level uh, and getting the political buy-in and establish the political will in order to get cabinet to agree that yes, and cabinet at the time was mostly men. Uh, and it was sometimes a very difficult thing to convince the men in cabinet that this was the right thing to do. But if you could have at least one who felt the passion, who felt the emotional attachment to the issue, then you knew that you were going to do something. And uh, Sepuka also grew up uh, in a society where there was some violence in the family, same as myself. We had sisters who did not have the opportunity to go to high school, but who struggled to make it to high school. But we also had mothers who were very committed and very caring about their families. So they taught us the values of respect 
uh, of uh, accountability, of responsibility for our families. So we took all this together uh, and said, okay, develop uh, some framework, a policy that is going to uh, be specific but targeted just to the public service only because it was too big an issue to deal with. So we had to be specific and, and deal with what was within our control. And what was within our control was the public service. Uh, and we, we, we said, we looked at our strengths, our weaknesses, uh, and, and developed this policy with the support, of course, with experts uh, from, like, Glenn, from the Australian government, uh, and from the civil society, from the churches. You know, we had to, you know, seek the views. And based on that, we developed this policy. And that policy had to be endorsed by cabinet. And as long as you establish that political will, mm. everything just starts to fall in place. Mm. And then the, the policy that sets the legislative framework, which uh, was the basis for the law to be made, to make provisions in the Public Service Management Act about gender not equality, but gender equity and social inclusion. And our intervention on equity was deliberate because you talk about gender equality, uh, people, men will not accept it. So it was about gender equity. This is providing opportunities for women in the public service to rise up, to step up, and to speak up. So we, we coined that phrase. Well, I did. I coined the phrase, rise up, step up, and speak up, to provide it as a challenge. Because I asked a lot of women in the public service, most of them were in low-grade positions, like keyboard operators, uh, executive assistants, you know, working two men. So I said, why, why, why don't you apply for higher positions? They said, we're scared. And I said, what are you scared of? I said, because of being rejected. Our application's being rejected. I said, well, we can uh, fix that. We can upgrade your qualifications so that you can be able and be capable to apply for higher level positions so we can compete. And so the policy addressed and the general orders were changed to reflect, to give more women, uh, more opportunities, uh, selection uh, and recruitment processes were changed. Uh, Australian development scholarships were also changed to give more women more opportunities. Uh, in areas where they had been lacking. 
And we had to make sure that uh, the, the, the main legal framework also uh, went right down to the regulations and the business processes to make the environment more conducive uh, for the participation uh, of women in the workforce. We also uh, got uh, the Male Advocacy Network, mm. which I call the MAN. That was your uh, innovation, if I remember. Yes, yes. Uh, so we got all the men together and set up focal points in each of the uh, departments. Uh, we uh, also identified key positions, which were to report directly to departmental heads, responsible for uh, the mainstreaming of gender equity and social inclusion in the departments, in the provincial administrations, uh, and got selected people who volunteered to step up and to become advocates uh, and to receive training uh, in, uh, you know, how to uh, do this work. So starting from the top, right down, getting the, the legal framework, the administrative structures, the accountability structures, and getting the right people who were willing and who were passionate uh, was the key yeah. uh, to, to making it work. And, and this work isn't automatic, and I've worked in different uh, sections of government over my time and, and spoken to a lot of people who haven't had that leadership or that, um, that sponsorship that you provided. Um, the, tr the, the male advocacy network that you refer to was uh, uh, um, led by the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre uh, yeah. and you were a great supporter of, the, of that training to go on. There were three to four um, uh, steps across the program. Uh, Milky's been part of that. Uh, you, you've uh, worked across the Pacific in that, in that space and, and worked with the, the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre and you're an active male advocate. Um, there was a, a recent um, review of the program and, and talked about the four phases of the program and focused, uh, the, the, the program focused on consistently on the experiences of women and children, the need for men to give up coercive controlling tactics to reflect on ways they had dehumanised or belittled or objectified women. Inviting men to reflect is a difficult thing because we feel the shame. Men feel the shame about this. Uh, but much has been said about that network um, what are the principles that underpin that network and, and, and that working with men for, for changes, uh, for gender equality and for ending violence against women? Yes, um, and before I start, I just want to acknowledge the fact that I'm here only because of the Pacific uh, Women's Network Against Violence Against Women. Those wonderful women who are actually trailblazing the Pacific, uh, leading the work around um, advocacy, community education. So I'm just here, first of all, to acknowledge that I'm only here because of them. Um, and so Shamima in, in Fiji, Ofa in Tonga, um, Marilyn in, in, in Vanuatu. Uh, so this is the network I'm talking about. And then Masia Kalinoe and a few other women in PNG who often work in very extreme and difficult conditions <coughs> in, in defending women's human rights and, and supporting survivors. So first of all, I just want to acknowledge yeah. that uh, before I start. Um, and so um, my role in this work uh, as a male advocate is, is, is for two things. One is that we are male advocates for, for women's human rights and, and for gender equality. 
That's basically what the program is for. And it's informed by the practice that uh, um, Abby was, was referring to. Uh, uh, grounded on, on women's experiences, um, guided by uh, women's human rights and the principles in the framework around it, and, and accountability. So these are already the principles I'm talking about. It, it's women-led, it's women-guided, it's informed by, by international back practice around the reasons why we have violence happening as far as men is concerned. And, and the drivers around it. So, and it be gender transformative as one of the key principles of this work. That in order for us to do this work, we had to undo and unlearn this traditional uh, social norms, uh, gender norms around being a man. Mm. And that is being influenced by culture and, and, and deeply rooted in different uh, societies that, that we come from. So one of the first things that we did is that we, our work was informed by those those principles yeah. of accountability, being gender transformative, realizing that our work is both complex, but, but it's also beneficial in terms of agency to, to, to take action and to do our part uh, to address violence against women. And, and so th that's basically the, some of the principles I'm, I'm referring to, but also more to the point that this can happen and this does work, that men can support women's human rights and gender equality, and it doesn't harm anyone. In fact, the fear that is being um, created by uh, this notion of gender equality and, and the fact that, oh, uh, I'm going to work for women or, or, or with women, many men don't feel comfortable with. Uh, but when you go through this program that is being led and guided by, by the network, you actually start to really, really see yourself within that system and that structure that perpetuates violence. And then you start to step back a little bit and start questioning yourself. You know, to the point that you start to see, yeah, I'm, I'm also committing violence. I may not be physically violent, but in terms of my perception and the words I, I use are actually hurting women. And so the, for me, one of, one of the key things as men in the Pacific who are very traditionally grounded in culture and religion was, was to come to that point of realization that, yes, I do commit violence. Of course, I'm in a very important position of structure within society, but... While I, I, I acknowledge that that is important, I also know that I can do something about it. Yeah. You know, I can influence change within that structure and system. And that's what we are working with right now as far as the male advocacy program is concerned. We are working with the community. We are working with traditional male leaders. The chiefs, for example, in Mekel, in one part of PNZ, um, very strongly grounded on, on culture and, you know, very deeply rooted as well. Uh, they... they they basically realize that violence is a problem and they want to really do something about it. Mm. And just being able to listen about uh, the experiences of women and, and what they go through and using data and the stories that have been happening anyway, it starts to, you know, um, ignite some, some point of consideration within themselves. Yeah. And so then you start to get into the leadership within the church uh, who are also very... Um, um, strongly related to culture, and they take that with them into their Bible teachings, for example. And, and that's one of the things I work with closely is through these religious circles and through these traditional leaders, trying to make them understand that, of course, they may be uh, influencing um, decisions negatively to affect women, yeah. but they also have the power to change that. Yeah. And using that power to a point where you can start seeing um, the practices of equity, equity and yep. both equality happening within the community. So those are amazing work that's being done. I've seen changes personally 
like and and I I'm I'm totally be, uh, a believer in the fact that the solution is already there. Mm. You know. Let's work with it. Yeah. And let's work, work within the structures and systems to make change possible. Because these people are willing. These men are willing. Yeah. They want they want to change themselves as well. Yeah. And we have found that as long as you work within these principles and within this network, you are much more informed to produce the better outcome mm. in the Pacific. You're, you, I've heard you speak before on the, um, the misinterpretation of religious text. Can you just touch on that just briefly? Because I think it's really fascinating how you deconstruct that, not in a way that challenges people's belief in Christ. You're a strong Christian man yourself, but you do it in such a loving, gentle way for men to, to understand that this is impactful on their lives. Mm. Yes. Um, importantly, the fact that uh, the Pacific is so grounded on, on Christianity, it's a very good avenue and opportunity for, for, for male advocacy to work really, really well. And what, what we do... And, and this is where you just don't do it from your head. You know, that's, where, that's where it comes down to. You, you do it from a point of belief in what, what you're teaching. And so one of the first things about the Bible, which is what we all believe in, is that there are certain texts within it that men use to justify their positions of power, their positions of authority, to the point that they also excuse violence. Yeah against children, against women, and then accommodate that within the point that they do not report it as well. Yeah. Uh, to that point that it becomes impossible for women and girls to even go out and speak against that. Mm. And so what, what we do, or what I do within that circle is that I engage them through a, a, a what, what people already know, read the Bible together with them. Yeah. You know, and say, okay, for example, uh, they might come to you and say, well, Adam was created first, and uh, it was created uh, later on. And I said, of course, I know that and we know that. Let's sit down and go through it together and see exactly what that means within the confines of the biblical understanding. Yeah. You know, looking at the context, the application, yeah. uh, the principles of Bible study. So it's really a deeply rooted Bible, you know, engagement that, that we go into. And so Adam was created first, he was created, that's why she listens to me, she must submit to me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21, 22, 23, 24. Uh, the fact that there's submission and then uh, wife to always submit. So we go through that, the whole that's passage right. and really getting a deeper understanding. Is this really what the Bible is saying? Yeah. Is it really the meaning of, of what you are claiming it to be? Yeah. Or is there a different meaning to it? So breaking it down, applying context to it, applying the, the, the idea about the biblical understanding about allowing the Bible to teach you mm. and not you teaching the Bible. Mm. Because most, most often than not, you will find that because we grow up in a culture where patriarchy is so valued, which is, of course, the root cause, yeah. um, you will find that it's easy to accommodate those texts within the structure, those biblical understanding. Because you're already used to it. It's very easy for you to use it, yeah. you know? So, man, I'm, I'm a man. That's why the society values me. The Bible says that as well. So we try to break that down in a really nice, respectful yeah. uh, way that does not, does not make that man or uh, the person become more defensive yeah. in a trusting, respectful relationship. That's great. Yeah. Um, thanks, Melky. That's, that's really good. Getting right down to the, the technical aspect of working with men. I'm going, to, I'm going to pivot again and go back to Abby and ask her about 
Um, at a, recently, a couple of weeks ago, at an OECD conference, it was about men, uh, where men are, where are men and the drive to end violence against women. A blog piece by Gary Barker, who's the president of CEO of Pomundo, he spoke about the tension between supporting the focus of men to change beliefs, mindsets and behaviour versus supporting women. And this is a, a debate that's been going on for a while. Um, and I'll, I'll pricey my question down. Well, how do we get the balance right uh, in aid and development resources? We, we don't want to rob Patrice to pay Paul, do we? Um, I think that, thank you, Melfi, so much that, um, yeah, so much to... to reflect on from your contributions. Melky and I, just to share, we're together just six months or so ago at a regional engaging men and boys to end violence against women and girls meeting in the Pacific. So it was a very robust um, debate there around these issues. I think, look, I think at the end of the day, donors and policymakers must prioritize feminist-informed leadership in women-led interventions so that male allies and men who are working in the space of women's um, of violence against women and girls that that we don't detract from that limited space because the reality is is the space is limited for women and that is that space was already small um, and I think that um, it is important that in the broader global kind of or, or regional or national context of policy and development, you must analyze the space for women and women's organizing and women's services and all of that within the broader context of your work to engage men and boys. I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that that work around working with men at the individual, community, societal, and policy level isn't fundamental to solving the problem of violence against women and girls, because it is. I think that the um, some of the analysis that has been done at a global level is that there had been some worrying trends, and I'm talking globally now, mm. not speaking directly to the Pacific here, but there were some worrying trends that with all of this focus now on the niche area of engaging men, it was going to men, to men's organizations, to men's groups, and that was totally disconnected from the actual issue, which was violence against women. And so how is that, how, what's the relational accountability that's there between the men working on this and the, how the funding is flowing and, and all of that? Um, so I think that, um, you know, we don't want to rob Patrice to pay Paul, yeah. uh, and, you know, fundamentally. Um, and we know that Patrice, you know, th the, whoever the theoretical Patrice is, and women want men to be worked with. We yeah. want men to be... Um, you know, women, I always say, like, having been in various contexts in my life, I've gone from grassroots, you know, work in shelters and rape crisis centers to kind of policy levels and working with survivors directly for many years. Women will always say, please talk to my husband. Make him change. I love him. I don't want the family to break up. I want the violence to stop. So women keep working with men because we because women ask us to, and because we know that men are critical um, to solving the problem of violence, and we know many men want to. And I think that there is, and this is where the social norms, and I, we don't want to get tech, you know, too technical here, but, but we know that sometimes what men grow up seeing isn't necessarily what they themselves believe right, is right, but it's what they think they should be doing. Yeah. And so one of the things that I really push a lot for the Pacific especially is that when we're looking at prevention, that we have to be looking at bundling 
different kinds of interventions across that socio-ecological model. So looking at the individual level, like male advocacy for women's human rights. It's an in individual behavior change model that has diffuser effects where men use their influence to change others around them. So then it has a broader community kind of social norms impact. But then we need to be working with the community because men can't individually change and then go right back into a system that is telling them, don't be like that. You know, we need the community to change. Then there needs to be the policy framework um, that's in place. So Mr. Kiley and his, his work, that needs to be there. And if we're strategically bundling that work across those different, different spheres over time, we should start to really see shifts. Um, and yeah, I think that is a real future direction um, for... For, for the Pacific. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to uh, Mr. Cowley now because I, I remember working in DPM and um, he appointed a deputy secretary, uh, a, a woman, uh, her name was uh, Ty Sanson and she's now the secretary. Uh, and uh, she said, uh, when I, I went into her office and she said, I don't know how to do this. I, I'm, Mr. Kelly's put me in this position. I can't do it. There's others that should be above me. I shouldn't be in this role. Um, I'm going to mess it up. Mm. And we had we had some ongoing discussions, and I, I sent you some emails. I said, "Listen, we need to support her because she's having doubts. She wants to." I'm going to send a letter to him and say <laughs> I can't do it. Mm. And uh, so we we worked to support her. And one of the key things was uh, for her her doubts about herself. Uh, you came forward and, and, and you put faith in her. Mm. Uh, and we said to her, well, this, you're talking about the most, one of the most senior, uh, bureaucrats in the PNG system is supporting you to run his department in that high position. He is, he, he doesn't want to be made a fool of. He has got faith in you to do this work. And after a lot of support, after about, um, a couple of months, she said, I, I can do this job. And she's become a, 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 a fantastic advocate for equality. The department now has nearly 50-50 of women at senior executive level. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a great, great new story about uh, what support we can give to women mm. in women's leadership. And I'm going to ask you, so how do my, what would you say to male leaders about supporting and sponsoring women into leadership? What, what key things would you say is, is important? Uh, to, to offer that support. Before, before I come to that, I'll just go back a few years. When I joined the public service, like I was saying earlier, most of the women were at the bottom rung. Yeah. Uh, and so it was our responsibility as leaders uh, of the organization to make sure that you know, they, they rose, came up through the ranks. So through this uh, new energy to, uh, you know, uh, give them a meaning and, and for them to say, oh, I can do this, mm. you know, for them to rise up. So they started, uh, you know, uh, taking up training programs and lifting their qualifications uh, from 70% to 30%. Uh, it th that was the balance. 30% mm. uh, of leaders, uh, of men up there and 70% of, of the women were at the bottom. Yeah. So we started sitting down with uh, some of the women and encouraged them to apply. And, and then I said, bring your husbands in. I want to talk to your husbands huh? uh, so that, you know, I can get them to support you when you're away for your training program. Uh, and, and to give them the comfort that what you're doing is for the benefit of the family. 
that when you come back, you will get a, a promotion or whatever it's going to be. But, you know, you're going to contribute to the income of the family. So the husband started supporting them. So they started allowing the, the women to go for short-term training, two, three weeks, or even four weeks. And some even went for a degree training. Yeah. And then came back and, uh, and, and got promoted. Uh, Tyus was a good example. Yeah. She, she, I saw a lot of potential in there. Uh, and then because of this uh, thing that we were trying to do for, to promote women, I went and sat down with her and I said, look, I think you can rise up and become a departmental head one day. And she said, oh. <laughs> she said, I'm scared. I said, what are you scared of? He said, in my custom, we don't work about men. Yeah. And I said, I'm German. That's not true. I said, you can change that. And uh, so I said, what, what do we think we have to do for you to you know, get that confidence? I said, well, I applied for a course to go and do my master's, but my husband is stopping me. I said, you're going to tell your husband to come. So she called her husband in, and I said, what's the problem, mate? <laughs> and he said, well, my wife is going to go away for two years, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to be here. And I said, well, you can go with her. I'll make sure that the scholarship provides for you to accompany your, 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 your spouse so you can be the houseboy, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I said, what am I going to do? I said, well, we'll find something for you, but at least you agree that you're going to go and support your wife. Mm. I said, yes. So she went and got her master's. And then came back and, uh, you know, I said, okay, well, I'm going to give you an another level up. <coughs> so I identified several women in the department who had potential and started to encourage them, sit down with them, and bring their families in to talk to them. So, you know, their families also supporting them in this thing. Eventually, uh, she said, yes, I yeah. think I can do it. Yeah. I said, of course you can bloody well do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, she accepted the position as executive manager. And then later, after you know, 18 months, I said, I think you're ready to move up as a deputy secretary in policy. And she said, oh, my goodness. Secretary, I'm, I'm my heart, yeah. I said, you said that when, you, uh, when I was asking you to do this other job, it's easy. He said, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so regular, yeah, yeah. you know, discussions, uh, you know, regular support. Yep. Uh, and I said, if you have any issues, please ring me up. We can discuss your challenges. And eventually uh, she became the deputy secretary. Uh, two women promoters, deputy secretaries. But at the same time, I was getting there to sit in on selection panels for appointment of departmental heads. And so we also put in the uh, selection criteria, a merit consideration was women must be given the opportunity based on their qualifications, not just because they are women. So we started promoting a lot of women into deputy secretary roles in justice and attorney general, uh, in labor department in many key departments, uh, and eventually 
got them to be appointed as uh, secretaries of department. So Tyus is now uh, taken over from me as secretary for DPM. Uh, Barbara Age is now secretary for foreign affairs. We've got another woman who's our secretary to cabinet and NEC. Mm. So women are rising in the public service uh, and making their mark. So giving them the opportunity, but supporting them uh, and getting their family to support them and encouraging them uh, and continuously mentoring them uh, gives them the confidence uh, to, to get up. Mm. Uh, and so when they get up there, they will start dragging everyone else up mm. in levels of decision-making. They will try to encourage other women. Mm. But sometimes our people back home say, women are their worst enemy. And I say, well, you say that, but you must change it. Because you are the bloke person in the, uh, in the position of power to make a difference now. Mm. I think they're great observations that through the PNG government and, and it was a, uh, it's, it's been, these things just don't happen automatically. There's a lot of work goes in behind them and I think you stressed that point. And uh, Amy, you've recently been appointed the as Tetra Tech Coffee's International Development Asia Pacific Managing Director. And, and when we're in managing contractor world, um, how do organisations ensure they are inclusive, embracing um, uh, ending violence against women and supporting the empowerment of women and women in leadership. What's your views on that for, from, a, from the contractor, world contractor? Really good question, and I think reflecting on some of John's comments, there's absolutely elements of that that as an organisation in and of itself that we need to and are working through. And so I really see this in, in two buckets. There is how we harness the expertise of experts such as Gabby, Melky and Glenn, and, and bring them to that point of, of delivery and working with local stakeholders and communities and, and counterparts and governments. But it's also about taking that opportunity to critically reflect on ourselves. And if I think about coffee being a part of Tetra Tech as a global company with 20,000 um, staff working across the globe on various different projects, that's 20,000 people that can be agents of change as well. Mm. So if we think about that internal space of creating a really vibrant and thriving workforce um, and safe space for both men and women to thrive um, is really important for us as an organisation. And I think that opportunity to reflect is often rare and that opportunity to really put a stake in the ground and say we're going to transform and, and this is really important, sorry, really important to us. Um, and um, thinking through sort of the, th the three elements that, that underpin that in terms of being purpose-led and values-driven as a starting mm. point and that all of our, our behaviours are in line with, with that DNA and that thinking, mm. um, thinking through what the leadership um, and sponsorship of that therefore is and how that's derived from those values. And, um, you know, we're seeing great changes at coffee uh, in that space in terms of leadership and sponsorship. As Glenn mentioned, um, I'm the first female managing director in coffee's 60-year history. Um, we now have 65% of women uh, sitting in our leadership team and we have about 60% of women in our projects um, or of our project staff are women and increasingly seeing significant um, rises in numbers of team leaders and those senior positions in our projects um, being female-led. And so really providing... Um, that 
that role modelling to all of those to, to the organisation and bringing that that credibility um, in that delivery of, of what we believe in that in that technical side, but also living <coughs> living those values as well. And thirdly, it's around how we empower our managers um, to also do that through the policies, through the tools, through the access to experts such as Glenn and his team, um, and providing the infrastructure and framework in terms of leave provisions, financial support, mm. um, or referral to support services and making them all available to staff, um, we see as being really critical. Mm. Yeah. Can, can I just... Uh, yeah, sure. I, I just want to mention there's been a real uh, <clears throat> a case in point where we assess the applications from men and women, highly qualified, put them through the, uh, the laundry, and then uh, at the end of the day, there were two candidates who were tied for a key position in the public service. And it was a man and a woman. They were tied. So we had to fall back on something, and I said, we need to promote women because of our gender equity and social inclusion policy. And I said, that's what we were going to encourage uh, you know, the women in the workforce to rise up. And so the Ministerial Executive Appointments Committee accepted my recommendation and recommended for this female candidate to be appointed the chief executive of this particular organization, which I'm not going to name. It went to cabinet, and cabinet decided to appoint the male. And so after two years, they found that there was a legal loophole that the appointment of this male was unlawful on the basis that the recommended candidate from the MEAC was a female and a very highly qualified female officer. But purely because of what had happened in cabinet, because what had happened was this particular minister, portfolio minister was absent uh, when the recommendation from the MEAC was made. So he went to cabinet and he said, no, well, I wasn't there uh, when the recommendation was made, so I support uh, this male candidate. Mm. Anyway, uh, the law has now stood for uh, uh, what you call merit, and that is support uh, gender equity and social inclusion. So we're back to square one. They've, they've, they've dismissed that guy now. And the construction of merit is an interesting discussion in itself. So what is meritorious to an organisation? What is, what is going to add value to... Uh, what do we want to see in leadership and what's going to add value to my organisation is, is having more diversity, is having a more inclusive uh, uh, and diverse workforce to represent the community that we serve. Um, uh, that's in the public service, but um, in the work that we do as well, like uh, we're, we're serving the community in, in our work, and we need to have diversity and representation there. Um, so we've we've got a couple of minutes, just maybe about five minutes before we open the the floor up to questions. But is anyone in the in the group here got any uh, final um, uh, comments to make around uh, the future uh, of working better with men? Uh, on, uh, in their responsibility and their advocacy uh, to, to embrace gender equality and ending violence against women. If there's any a final... Yeah, thanks, Melby. 
Yes, and I want to start by saying that, um, you know, the men we work with is across all levels of our society. Uh, it's from the church to the government to um, the community. And I, I was actually privileged enough to work with the Public Service Male Advocacy Network, um, helping them to continue to roll out that male advocacy program across the public service as started or initiated by uh, His Excellency. And we've got a really good group of uh, uh, a strong public service male advocates who are now supporting that that work within within the public service, but also more we have actually used that uh, provincial government system and the district uh, government system to roll it out to the communities because that's where you find uh, the power structures are anyway the, the original power structures for all these influence that you that you find. So we have actually now rolled out the program both from the national level where uh, His Excellency was and to the provincial level, and now to the district level. Yeah. So you got it at least spread out from the from level. In the community, you, we now have a lot of pastors who are preaching from the pulpit, uh, correcting the teachings, because mainly about misinterpretation of the text and misapplication of it, um, and also the traditional chiefs who are now promoting non-violence within, the, within their, their cultural laws yeah. uh, in terms of uh, rules of guiding behavior within the young men and, 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 and the kind of violence that happened and reporting that to the police as well, which is part of making sure that people are held accountable yeah. uh, for the violence that happened. So a lot of work has been happening in that space. So just, just to um, kind of round up everything, I believe personally that uh, the work of ending violence against women in the Pacific will only and continuously be progressive and, and, and achieve better outcomes when we continue to work within this framework and the principles we have highlighted. Mm. Women-led, women-guided, based on human rights principles, because you're, go you're working within a, a system and a structure that is generational in nature. Mm. You, you cannot work around it in another way. You have to work through it. And this is the way we have seen it work. And this is the way I have seen it work. And so, Whatever, whatever that we need to do within this old age space, it needs to support and continue to fund women's network. It needs to go there. Even if there are challenges with men's programs coming up now, which is becoming a bit of a challenge, and that's a challenge I want to highlight before I finish, is the fact that there is a lot of money and funding now going to men's behavior change programs in the Pacific, which I find a little bit offensive. In a, in a personal way, yeah. but, but in my role as a male advocate as well. Yeah. Because here they see that there's already a program that's working. It's best practice. It's delivering results. You know, it may not necessarily be evidence-based at this stage, but from the other general evaluations that have been conducted by different experts who have come in and out, as Abby has mentioned, have highlighted that it is a very good model. It's homegrown. Mm. It works with our cultures. Yeah, yeah. It works with, with our systems. And it's making a big difference. And so while you have other programs that are trying to engage men or working with men for behavior change programs, maybe you can uh, maybe fund them, but don't take funding from women's work yeah, yeah. and give it to them. <laughs> I I'm serious. Yeah. Keep the funding. Give it to the women's network. They're doing a lot of good work. And they're doing it often, always, yeah. in very difficult situation and challenges. And you have this contest, uh, yeah. contestation that will continue to happen. Yeah. But my, my, my plea and my, um, um, I guess, proposition uh, as a male advocate and a supporter, strong supporter 
of this work is to make sure that we continue to support, engage with this work that's already been groundbreaking and, and changing a lot of men in the Pacific. Thank you. Just one, one thing, Glenn, yeah. literally sure. one thing. Um, just to say that this regional engaging men and boys workshop that we, we were part of, one of the things that we are planning to produce is a doc, kind of a, a donor policy document around the principles um, that should underpin work. So, I mean, just to build on the point that Melky said that, you know, there can be different avenues and different kinds of interventions, but how, how, how are we ensuring that there's a gendered power analysis that underpins that? How are we ensuring that there's some accountability mechanism that's going back to, you know, women's, women's movement? So that needs to be in place. And just the last thing I would say around, around where do we see this work going and what do we, you know, what are the things that we, we know are coming? One is backlash. <laughs> Is what? Backlash. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the more empowerment and the more that, that norms are shifting, there is backlash then that happens. Yeah. And I think understanding the backlash yeah. and, and is going to be really important for, as we move forward as well. Yeah, and, and managing, managing that is, uh, coming back to what Mr. Kelly was talking about, is having those discussions and dialogue at the earliest possible time. In the, having that with the community, with, with other men and women and saying... It's, it's okay, I understand you're feeling anxious about this, but there are benefits for, for, for the whole community and for family as well. So I think that's a really a, a good point well made. And the, the model of working with women's services in ending violence, against, uh, ending violence against women and working with men is a really well-worn path in my country and your country in New Zealand, other countries uh, um, with perpetrator programs now. Uh, so they work... Um, there's a, there's a, a, a woman support officer. Uh, there's male programs uh, where men, men are doing groups and work over a period of time. And interestingly, the FWCC model uh, is, makes up the same 20 weeks in one week as what the perpetrator programs do. So it's an intensive one week. And, and you, and I, you and I both know as well, Mr. Kelly, there, there is a lot of self-reflection, a lot of tears, a yeah. lot of uh, um, uh, evaluation of one's own behaviour over the time. Um, I suppose I'm getting to the point that there's a, um, there, there is a need moving forward that we are dealing with, um, uh, with men who choose to uh, perpetrate violence uh, and, and that we can, we can finesse and nuance those programs and still work at a community-based level, still work uh, with women, in partnership with women's services and led by women's services in a best practice model. Um, I'm right on time, aren't I? I'm right on time. <laughs> uh, at, so we're going to uh, open it up to the floor if there's any questions uh, and uh, things you want to ask our panel. Uh, I think the convention is we take three at a time and then we disperse them amongst the panellists as to how they, who wants to answer and, and uh, so, okay. Um, Deputy. Uh, thank you. Uh, firstly, let me uh, thank uh, the organisers for this very important event and uh, thank you and the panellists for the very informative uh, presentations. Um, this is not a, any, of course it is an issue for PNG, the Pacific and uh, the international community. And uh, for us, I just want to highlight a few things as you uh, try to see this in the context of PNG. Of course, we've got colleagues from uh, the US, maybe going back 400 years. Uh, Australia, so many hundred, uh, many years as well. And we are a country that came out of 
you know, no way. I mean, no way, but in terms of we have 45 years or so of independence. And so when you're looking at this in terms of the cultural context mm. and how we have come about, I think that's something that I, I want us to uh, keep in mind. Um, when you talk about PNG, um, 80% maybe of our people are living in the rural areas. Yes. And when you look at the rural areas, we got uh, more than, the country has more than 800 different languages, cultural diversity, cultural practices. Uh, that's quite, uh, uh, that needs to be also taken into account, the different cultures. And then we've got the urban setting and the rural setting, the development stages of uh, our own communities. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, High Commissioner Kali talked about uh, the things that he and the government has been doing in the, pub in the public service. Now, that is for the public service. And then we have the, um, the working class, educated Papua New Guineans, women, male and men and women. And then we have majority that are unemployed. Mm. They are not working. And they are faced with different challenges as well. So, as we're talking, as we are seeing this, I think it is a, a whole lot of issues uh, that we need to unpack to see this. Yep. And for me, I think, um, of course, uh, uh, the issue about uh, prevention is uh, very, very important. And the interventions that we need to make, I think sometimes the uh, media and everybody else uh, seem to I hear this comment that, oh, they're labeling all the men as, uh, as woman killers and troublemakers. Uh, so I think that's something that the men seem to be saying. That, but I think it's not that the men are against women or against girls. I think, as uh, was pointed out, women, uh, women's issues are men's issues, family issues. We're all in together for that. And I think what is important is there are certain factors that are contributing to the violence against women and all that. What are those causes? What can we actually do to address those issues that will eventually change attitudes and mindsets? So I'm keen to hearing more about what we are doing in terms of helping. And I like the word economic empowerment that somebody came up with. How can we actually empower our girls and women? Uh, because part of it is to do the way they are living in terms of issues they are challenging every day in terms of putting bread and butter on tables, school fees, and some of these issues that are contributing to those things as well. So thank you. Thank you. Another question? Thanks. Um, I'm Faria Ibrahim. I'm an independent consultant now, but I did work in the public sector here in Australia for about 20 years. Um, in the last six months or so, I've worked with PNG Business Coalition for Women oh. on a number of um, issues that are relevant to this discussion. With respect to the public sector Jesse strategy that you spoke about, Mr Cully, I've read that and that's actually a very good document. Um, what I'm wondering is, uh, you also spoke about legislation changes uh, which have also supported promoting Jesse principles, but inside the public sector, despite the promotion of women to uh, higher level positions and so forth, has there really been cultural change within the public sector institutions mm -hmm. themselves? Because having strategies and policies don't necessarily change behaviour and attitudes. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, one more question. Thanks. 
Hi, my name's Kelly Durrant. Um, I work for Murray Stopes International. Um, my question is about the role of shame in this, and I'm not just talking about the shame that men may feel when they realise that they've been perpetrated, but also the shame of women who maybe realise they're staying in relationships that are violent and how um, you tackle that. Great. Thanks. Um, okay, so perhaps the first one in regard to, we're talking about the importance of the cultural context, understanding the diversity, uh, the 800 languages, uh, a lot of the people being disconnected from, um, uh, from, from populous areas and living away from, from cities, and, and what are we doing around the causes? Uh, um, maybe, uh, Abby, might, you might address that uh, in, about PNG and about... I suppose there's a couple of questions there. So one's about the complexity in, in PNG and the other one is about the causes and the, and the evidence base around causes and whether that's applicable to a PNG or they are they a specifically different, um, uh, different category in regard to that. What, what's your research, what's your, your experience telling you? Well, I think that, um, thank you very much for the comments and the, and the questions. I think that we have a lot of, I mean, in the Pacific, we have, I think, the most data on violence against women and girls than any other region, actually. Although I don't think PNG's done a full proper prevalence study. So that is a bit of a limitation. But in 13 out of the 14 Pacific Island countries, you have a full WHO prevalence study that tells you what's causing violence and what's contributing to it. Okay. I think, um, I would imagine for PNG, it's similar. To, to some of the other countries, particularly in Melanesia, around looking at um, the role of, of, of gendered power relations. Um, but then I'm sure there's also um, contributing factors that, um, that our frontier had raised up in terms of looking at issues of poverty um, and other dimensions. I actually was just reading the, the latest research, global research, on um, drivers of violence against women and girls this isn't PNG specific, so just let me take a tangent for a second. But I mean, there is much stronger correlations coming out globally around, um, around the role of poverty. And some of that's not just around the increased tensions at the household level, um, but also even ch changes that are happening within the brain, and that's also linked back to food security issues. So just to say that these are complex, and whether or not you're dealing with you know, very rural or urban um, um, or remote communities, you've got a, such a diverse range of culture within PNG, and all of that really needs to be understood in order to solve the problem, because you can't really... As I said before, we can't just say gender inequality is driving violence. Okay, well, what does that look like in lay? You know, and then within the communities there. I mean, you have to take it down to a, a really localized contextual level to really look at how does this play out, and then how do you design your, your programs and your policies to then address it? Um, so... I mean, that's a very general answer. We can certainly have discussions around interventions and strategies that we know do work. The, the thing about them, whether it's women's economic empowerment, whether it's looking at transforming you know, how men and women relate to each other, whether it's looking at whole-of-government approaches and respectful relationships and all these different things that do have evidence around them, is that oftentimes to truly solve the problem of violence in any community, 
Um, it takes all of those things happening at the same time, yeah. funded and resourced and using the same theory of change and analysis of, of gender and, and power and all of that to, to, I think, actually eventuate. I mean, I, I mean obviously, I come from, from the United States. We've had a lot more time um, to look at the issue of violence and work on the issue of violence against women and girls, and we're still doing horribly. Mm. I mean, look at the, the statistics coming out of my own country around rape on college campuses. Um, you know, one in five women in the United States have ex has experienced violence. So we're decades and decades yeah. and decades in, and we still are nowhere near um, solving for it. So I think you have to take a, a long-term view. And I also would add that I think we need to take a um, really a crisis view. I mean, you look at the coronavirus. I mean, it's like... I just, when I was flying over here, I was just seeing everybody in the masks, and then I started to worry, and, and I just thought, my God, last year, 10 women just in Fiji, which is such a small country, were killed. You know, one of them a friend of mine. And why are we not, why is that not like a crisis right now? You know, why is there not like a coronavirus crisis for violence against women? Seriously, because it's like, because it is the biggest, you know, mortality and morbidity for women. And so I, I think, but that again goes back to because we have to value women's lives. Mm. Yeah, good. Mm. I, I want to I want to get onto just the other two questions. <laughs> we've, we've, we're nearly running out of time, but um, the Jetsy strategy. We're talking about how how are we going to measure cultural change. I'm aware that there's a, a review coming up uh, uh, on the on the uh, Jetsy strategy in PNG across the public service. And measuring cultural change, Amy, you've done a bit of monitoring and evaluation. Uh, how, how do we? How would you go about measuring that? So, uh, Mr. Carley has uh, employed you uh, to, um, to to lead the the review. Uh, <laughs> what, what would you be looking for? What are the type of things you'd be you'd be looking to um, uh, as evidence of cultural yeah. change there? Re really complex um, yeah. question, yeah. as you know. Sorry. It's all around. Yeah, <laughs> I got the hard one. <laughs> it's all around um, that behavioural change. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think often what we, in our aspirations to see big leaps, we often forego and, and over. Um, miss the really small steps yeah. and changes that we're making. So yes, we may not see at that really grand institutional level the changes that we are driving, but if you deconstruct some of those outcomes into really small steps and behaviour changes that maybe individuals are starting to undertake on a daily basis, one, two, three, four, five, ten individuals, um, that's when you can start to really think about, okay, we are making progress in the right direction here. And so I think that, that thinking upfront throughout and that constant um, monitoring of that behaviour and, and understanding, well, what, what does those little successes look like? Yeah. And, and I think, Mr. Kelly, was it, you, were, you were referring to a lot of them during your yeah. um, articulation around women's leadership, around setting up networks, having focal officers, having help desks, those sorts of things. Is there anything else that you think that, you, that, that comes from that policy that you recall uh, over the time of its implementation? Yeah. Let me support this young woman on that side there. That yes, we should treat gender, I mean, the violence against women as a serious disease that needs to be given a lot of resources uh, and, and be addressed immediately uh, by all sectors, the churches, the NGOs, the government, the aid donors, put your money there. Put, put your money where your mouth is. I've been asking for the Australian aid to be shifted 
to support gender equity. They preach about gender equity, they don't support it. So that's what we need to do. I'm, I'm going to plead, when we have our discussion this afternoon about Australian aid to Papua New Guinea this afternoon at 3.30, I'm going to tell this Australian government, put your money where your mouth is. It's a serious disease, support it. Coming back to cultural, culture change, it's about behavior. And we have to look at what impacts behavior and what affects behavior. If we can set the vision and say that it's the goal of the organization and change the rules of conduct and, and get the leadership to support that we can see some change. But regularly following up and making sure that it's happening. So this is why I started with, uh, you know, having a political will and, you know, and getting the, that to, you know, come right down and having the political leaders and the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic leaders working together. So they see the cooperation and so everyone starts to support that this is, these guys are serious. And not only do we uh, show it by our examples in the way we conduct ourselves, but it's, it's got to work all the way down. And that's what I meant by change the rules of conduct. So the business processes, and in the decisions that you make, you've got to show that you're serious about it, and you're committed and you're passionate. So have I seen some changes? Yes, I have. And I'm, I'm very positive that things will also change into the future. But I, I want people to come and, and uh, take that and run with it. Not, for, not benefit from it and forget about it, but benefit from it and continue to push for it. So if I can see tires, and tires promoting more women, uh, but having the values, you know, of respect and being accountable for your actions uh, and respecting, you know, women and respecting uh, others, those are the key mm. to uh, getting the organizational culture to change. But talking about the future, get it into the education system. Yeah. Start teaching the kids those values at a young age. Introducing it in sports. Yeah. A sport we love is AFL. So get the girls to play AFL. Mm. Get the boys to respect the girls on the sporting field. Mm. Played in soccer, played in cricket, netball. And we'll get the Australian government to support the uh, sports and spiritual um, relationships yeah. between our two countries. God bless Papua New Guinea and God bless Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that might be a good way to finish up our panel, but I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to address the issue of shame because it would be a shame not to address the issue of shame. Um, and, and doing um, 
some work recently working with men. We talk a lot about shame and that feeling of shame and how men can shift from uh, sitting uncomfortably with shame, and we're just talking about men and their accountability to violence and their relationship with the violence and sitting in the shame and moving and shifting to taking responsibility and, and taking accountability for their actions without the smoke screens of uh, uh, shifting the blame to someone else and minimising or mutualising, all those things that we tend to do when we're sitting in shame, blaming someone else, yeah. uh, and then to reparation and becoming an advocate. Sure. And, I, and, and Melky, you've, you've seen men shift from sitting in that shame to, to, to being uh, accountable and, and, and to reparation and... To, and to, and to being accountable and to being advocates. So maybe you can have the last word. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no uh, and, and a very good question, by the way. And it actually, actually sits very much in, in the work we do. Um, and I, I think your question was in relation to the women who face uh, at least shame. I, I think we do talk about how yeah. men have that shame, yeah. but I think the part missing from that yeah. is often Shame for women as well. Yeah. Because often women know the behaviour they're putting up with is not okay. That's right. And yet they put up with it because of the social Exactly right. Yeah. And, and that's what we're yeah, definitely working with uh, in terms of the, the work we do. Like, for example, uh, I know some of you know Bougainville uh, as well. We've done a lot of work with the Council of Chiefs within, within the part of our country. And what we, what we have done is that we have actually brought that out of a, a normal training room, or a, a, you know, the normal way of conducting the work we do, to the community where the women are, so that the women can also see and, and, and feel and know what this is uh, doing to the man, you know? And in that way, bouncing it off again uh, with the way women feel about that. Yes, give it a whole our community uh, perspective about it, but really within the lived experiences, you know? And then that's where you find that women will always come down to the point that they don't, they don't want to do things that will actually affect the relationship to the point that they, they destroy what a man looks like, you know? That's, they always protect him. They always look up to him. They, they always want to make sure that at least the violence must stop, you know? Because I can accommodate myself in all this shame, you know, and I can live with that, but I want you to change, you know? And so we, we are breaking that step by step. It's taking a very long time because it's culturally ingrained, but it's working. It's really working, and I've seen men uh, coming out of that, in that relationship, seeing the reality from, from their own women, sharing that and experiencing that. I think the men have just now look, look at that and say, this is real. I, I can see how... This has been accommodated to the point that I, I benefit out of it instead of using it to change uh, so that women cannot be feeling that same and living with it just so that that can be part of the, you know, uh, the accommodation that the man lives with while perpetuating violence. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that brings our session to a close. I'm sorry, I know there were some other questions, but please, please feel free to come up and speak to us in the break. Um, but I want to thank our panellists. Um, Amy, Abby, Melky, and His Excellency, uh, thank you for coming this afternoon and sharing yeah, your insights. Um, and I really enjoyed facilitating too, so thank you very much. Yeah.
You have been listening to Dev Policy Talks, a podcast by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website, devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. And thanks for listening.